Well, I don't know about you, but over the past couple months, we've been, uh, well, as the presidential election has, has been on our minds and our hearts, and we've been considering who we were going to be voting for, I know I found myself longing to be led by good leadership. Did anyone else feel that way? That longing? Yes. Well, we'll soon be selecting elders at CBC, and so this issue is doubly relevant for us now. We've had good leaders, and we want to continue having good leaders, and and that's a longing on our heart. So the elders and I decided that I'd speak on the topic of leadership this morning, and to get us started, if you can get your hands on a pen or a pencil, there may be a pencil sometimes in the seat in front of you, sometimes there isn't. And then pull out of your uh, bulletin, your service sheet, your yellow one, and on the back, you'll find two houses. They look like houses. And in the second triangle, the right-hand one, I'd like you to write the word church. So if you have a pen or a pencil and you've got this out, Right, church in the second triangle here. And then in the first triangle, write the name of a person or a group that you lead. Or or if you don't think of yourself as a leader, ask yourself, is there someone who I have an influence on or who I could have an influence on? It might be a friend of yours, a, a younger sibling, your children, maybe some kids that you babysit or teach in Sunday school, maybe a coworker a spouse, someone you have an opportunity to have an impact on. Okay, so write the name of that group or that person, if you can think of someone in that first box there. Then coming back over under the church box, in just a minute, I want you to think about and write down a few qualities that you feel that church leaders should have to lead the church well. And I don't want you to fill up your box because... As I speak this morning, you may want to add or delete from your list. That would be one good way to take notes on today's message. Then in the first box, under the name of the person or group that you are or could be a leader or an influencer of, I'd like you to write some qualities that, um, that you would like to have as you interact with that person. And again, as you listen to the message, I encourage you to keep working on your list. So I'm going to give you just a minute now to write some qualities under church, and for yourself personally. Okay, you can continue to take some notes in those spots as we continue. I'm going to do some teaching this morning on what sort of traits we should be looking for in Christian leaders in general, and in particular as we select elders to lead us in the next year. And I know some of you have expressed that you struggle to know what qualities to keep in mind when when it's time to select which uh, people you'll vote for as elders. And hopefully this morning will be helpful at least Um, to get us started with a conversation that will help to clarify uh, some of these things. Now, for those of you who've been around churches for a long time, you know that there are two obvious biblical texts that I could choose for today's message, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. These two texts are very similar, and in both of them, the Apostle Paul lists off a bunch of characteristics which overseers, elders, and or deacons should have if they're going to be leaders of churches. Let me read Titus 1, um, just to refresh our memory or to give you a taste if you're not familiar with the text. Titus 1, 5-9. 
Paul writes to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's, house, manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, this or the Timothy text are such obvious choices to preach on this morning. I want to take a couple minutes to explain why I'm not going to preach on one of those texts. And after the service, uh, there's going to be a handout at the back door um, if you want one, which will go into these reasons a bit more and also provide some other information for us about selecting leaders. So three reasons for not preaching, Timothy or Titus. First, when we say that we're selecting elders at CBC, and then we go to a text like this one in Titus, and we see that Paul is giving us a list of characteristics that elders should have, it's easy to assume that we and Paul are talking about exactly the same thing. But that's not necessarily the case. And let me give you a humorous example to explain what I mean. Let's say that I bought a bagel shop, and I need to hire a manager to run it for me. So I write to my good friend George Steinbrenner, and I ask him what qualities a good manager should have. And I get his email back, and of course it says things like, knows the rules of baseball, and is capable of handling a staff uh, of pitching and uh, batting coaches. You see where we're going. A manager in one situation is not, or, or is quite different, potentially, from a manager in another situation. And likewise, what goes into being an elder or the position we might call an elder in a church in 21st century Westchester County, which has a staff and a building and exists in the technological age in a big city like New York, may be somewhat different from what an elder did in a recently planted house church in ancient first century Crete out on an island in the Mediterranean. The second reason for not preaching the Timothy or the Titus text the Bible has a lot to say about eldering, which Paul doesn't cover in the lists that he gave in Timothy and Titus. Peter, for instance, in 1 Peter 5, adds that an elder must be an example, that, that elders must care for the people and watch over them, that elders must be willing to do the job, that they must serve, and that they will be rewarded if they serve well. And these are all important points which Paul doesn't cover in Timothy or Titus. In fact, scholars tell us that most of the qualities that Paul gives us in Timothy and Titus were held up even in the surrounding culture as characteristics that pagan leaders should have in leadership. In other words, they were common sense qualities for that culture. Now, why doesn't Paul give us more distinctively Christian qualities in those two texts? Well, there could be a few reasons. Maybe he's already given those to Titus and Timothy earlier. Or maybe it's because these churches, at least on Crete, are brand new. And so those who just came to Christ haven't had the time to develop distinctively Christian qualities yet. 
And so Paul was realistically working with what he had. This leads to the third reason, and that is that Titus, like 1 Timothy, was written first and foremost to help Titus and Timothy in the selection of elders for their contexts. And while there's a lot that we can and that we must learn for our own context, this is God's word we're talking about after all, but we can't just mechanically and unthinkingly apply those texts to our situation. We have to do some work of sorting through the list that Paul gives us and, and to figure out what applies to us and, and what doesn't apply and what we need to translate from, from those ancient situations to our own situation. And then we have to fill in the list that we come up with with everything else that the Bible says about leadership. And that's a big job and that's a very important job, but not for a 30-minute Sunday sermon. So I did some of that work myself and did some reading and, and looked broadly at all that the Bible teaches about leadership. And some of that is in the handout that you'll get. And then I selected a text for this morning, which I feel comes closest to the sweet spot of representing the most important things that the Bible teaches about church leadership. And that text that I selected is the one that um, Christina read for us, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. So we're going to look at that text this morning, and it's found in Paul's letter to a church in the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. I'm going to call it Paul's letter to keep things simple, even though Silas and Timothy had a hand in writing it too. Paul and Silas and Timothy had started this church after just having had a terrible experience in the city of Philippi. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and they were entitled to all the legal protections afforded by Roman law. But nevertheless, in Philippi, they'd been mobbed, and they'd been publicly stripped and, and beaten without a trial. And then they'd been thrown into prison. And then after that, they were banished from the city of Philippi, and they fled to Thessalonica, where they had a good reception, and they started a thriving church there in that city. But Luke tells us in Acts 17 that some opponents then rounded up some thugs and they started a riot in Thessalonica. And again, Paul and Silas had to steal away at night. Now, later, they're writing a letter back to this new church in Thessalonica. And they want to encourage the believers there and, and express their love for them. And they also are defending themselves against charges that they were just fly-by-night religious hucksters who were into ministry for their own benefit. And in our passage this morning, Paul reminds the Thessalonians what his ministry among them was like. And in the process, he gives us a wonderful window into what godly leadership looks like. Now, if we can have the slide up, I want to highlight seven lessons about Christian leadership, which we see in this passage. And again, this isn't everything the Bible has to say about leadership, but I think it, I think it really hits close to the heart and the center of what the Bible teaches. The first lesson is that Christian leaders are living demonstrations of the gospel message. The thing that strikes me most about this passage in Thessalonians is how many times Paul appeals to what the Thessalonians already well knew about what kind of leaders Paul and his companions were. Six times in 12 verses, Paul says things like, you yourselves know, as you know, remember, you are witnesses, just as you know. He's saying, we didn't hide behind a cloak of privacy. You 
know us personally. You know our example. We walked the talk when we were with you. You may have heard the saying, your life is shouting so loud, I can't hear the words that you're saying. And Paul is saying, you know what our life was shouting. Paul and Silas not only preached about a crucified Messiah who has called us to take up our crosses and follow him. No, they had the wounds to prove that they were living it. Their lives matched their message. I recently heard a story in Worship Leader magazine about the elders of Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley, California. They were concerned that their congregation needed to grow in the the ministry of the table that we talked about last month in Acts 7. That is, in, in sharing with those in need and in generously putting their possessions at the disposal of God's priorities. And one of them writes in this article, we started with what we could control. We can't control other people. We can't make the people at Cornerstone break bread in their homes or sell their possessions. So we led by example. It was a beautiful time of sharing as our elders laid everything at each other's feet. We surrendered keys to our cars, homes, and bank accounts. I actually believe the elders who looked me in the eyes and said, what's mine is yours. If anything ever happens to you, I will support and care for your kids as much as I would for my own. I will be your insurance. And because they had a history of genuine sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, I trusted what they said. From there, we began going to some of our friends in the congregation and expressing our commitment to them. And that's something that anyone can do. And now this mentality is spreading. New life is permeating the church as individuals are backing up their words with sacrifice. Cars and homes are being sold or given away. Expensive vacations are joyfully replaced with spending on others. People are being taken into homes, not only for meals, but to live. And he goes on and tells the rest of the story of what's going on at that church. And it all began with Christian leadership. With leading, first and foremost, by the example of our lives, in the case of those elders. The second lesson in this passage is that Christian leaders are courageous witnesses to what they know to be true. They share the story about Jesus. Verse 2, We had previously suffered and been mistreated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this message in the face of strong opposition. Christ-like leaders have the courage to speak the message about Jesus, come what may. They understand that Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost, that that's God's heart, impulse, and that they who were called to become like Christ need to do the same thing. Now, we might be tempted to think, yeah, but we're talking about Paul this morning. I mean, the Apostle Paul, evangelist extraordinaire. Most of us aren't gifted like he was. Well, that's true, but when it came to speaking about Jesus, Paul wasn't an exception. I can't think of a single New Testament follower of Jesus who we could point to and say, she or he wasn't talking to people about Jesus. Even soft-hearted Timothy was involved in the outreach to the Thessalonians. And, and Paul later tells him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And if Timothy was a, a gifted, soft-hearted pastor, then Barnabas was gifted as an encourager. But Barnabas did evangelism too. He was one of Paul's sidekicks. 
So did Jesus' original 12 disciples, as well as Philip and Stephen and Apollos and others. Added to this, I think that we can forget that Paul says in Ephesians 4, that famous passage, that Christ has given to the church not just pastors and teachers, but also apostles and prophets and evangelists to equip God's saints for works of ministry. So we should be raising up these kind of leaders too as leaders in our churches. Big picture outreach focused people in addition to those more focused on pastoring and teaching. They say speed of leader, speed of followers. If our churches are going to reach out, then the example of reaching out is going to have to start among our leaders. Third, Christian leaders are God-approved. They are studying and getting good grades in the God school, not the public opinion school. Verse 4, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Now, this is a tricky business because leaders have done all sorts of awful things in the name of God's will. They have bullied and controlled people. They have walked roughshod over people. And Christian leaders aren't to be like that. Yet, while Christian leaders must be sensitive to the needs and to the wishes of the people, they aren't driven by those needs and wishes. Rather, their ultimate goal and responsibility is to please God and to lead the people in pleasing God. God's smile means more to Christian leaders than the applause of the crowds. This God-focused impacts what they teach and what they don't teach. Christian leaders are to teach the truths of God's word whether or not it's what people want to hear. One of the things I love about CBC is that the tradition here is that speakers preach from the text of Scripture, not from the latest topic or idea that seems relevant at the time or that went over well at the last church that the speaker spoke at. There are so many human ideas out there, and ideas come and go, but it's God's Word ultimately which has the power to reveal God to us and to to supernaturally shape us and to make us into the people that God wants us to be. Now this point goes for each of us too in the circles of influence that God has given us, whether those circles are big or small. Do we speak the truth to people in love, even if it's sometimes hard for them to hear? Or do we just say nice things and leave people unchanged? Which brings more pleasure to God? Christian leaders desire to bring a smile to God's face. This also affects the decisions that leaders make and the initiatives and the directions that they lead in. Mildred Pfister was a leader like this. She, was a, uh, she ran a beauty parlor in Jefferson, Iowa, and she made an unusual rule in her beauty parlor. No gossip allowed. A columnist for the Des Moines Register reacted this way. He said, this is a beauty parlor, for goodness sake. One of those places women come to say things, loving, kind, unkind, and sure, maybe downright nasty about their friends and neighbors, whether it's true or not. It's as basic in the beauty parlor as a blow dry, isn't it? Not here, Pfister says. 
There is absolutely no talking about other people in Mildred Fister's shop. Talk about you and yours if you like, but no gossip. At least Fister doesn't have to worry about keeping secrets. She knows secrets because she's a friend to everybody who comes into that place. They know that she can be trusted. Sometimes people don't have anyone to talk to, she says, so they confide in me. They tell me things about themselves. They know I'll never repeat what they say. That's better than gossip. It's called friendship. Christian leaders aren't afraid to make these kinds of hard choices because more than anything else, they love to please God. Fourth, Christian leaders are childlike. Verses 5 to 7. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from before... I'm sorry. Looking for any human being nor from you or not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our prerogatives. Instead, we were like young children among you, or some translations say we were gentle among you. Christian leaders are not in it for the money, verse 5, or for the popularity or for the power, verse 6. Rather, Paul, Silas, Timothy were like young children. Without guile, Powerless, penniless, unpopular. Having nothing in and of themselves, but relying instead on the power of a foolish message about a crucified king. A message that when preached and lived out in our own lives, in love and weakness and suffering, unleashes the incredible resurrection power of God to transform hearts and lives and families and cities and nations. Lord of the Rings, I think, portrays this very powerfully. For those of you who've read the book or seen the movies, as the story begins, we learn that the time will soon come when little hobbits will shape the fortunes of all. And do you remember that scene in Fellowship of the Ring at the Council of Elrond at Rivendell? The council leaders are under urgent pressure to figure out what to do with the ring of power, which is drawing all evil to itself and is corrupting the power of all who bear it. And it's finally decided around that circle that, that Frodo the Hobbit, the one there who has little to offer except his own childlike innocence and, and lack of strength and power, will be the bearer of the ring to the mountain of doom where it can be destroyed. And Boromir speaks for all the mighty warriors and princes around that circle when he concludes, you carry the fate of us all, little one. That's what Christian leaders are to be like, childlike, hobbit-like, not ultimately relying on any power except Jesus and the good news of what he's done. The fifth quality of Christian leaders is motherly love. Verses 7 to 9. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Christian leaders love and care for God's people like nursing mothers for their young children. 
Mothers don't just feed and clothe their children and, and teach their children. Mothers give themselves for their children. They give their time. They give their energy. They give up sleep. They give up freedoms. It seems to be in a mother's nature to pour out her life for her offspring. You may have heard the stories which are occasionally told of a barn which burns or a forest fire. And and in the rubble in the aftermath, workers will find charred remains of of a chicken or of some other bird. And then underneath her protective carcass, they'll find still alive her little chicks. That's how Christian leaders are to be. Imitating God who, who cares for us in just this way. Paul reminds the Thessalonians, we cared about you so much that we didn't just share a message with you, we gave you our very lives. In the case of Paul and his companions, they gave not just their time and and, and their sleep and their privacy, no doubt, but they gave their hard work. They, They made tents to support themselves, in effect, working two jobs. And then also they literally put their lives on the line as well. My father was like this. He passed up lucrative jobs so that he could have a job which would allow him enough time and mental energy to to be a pastor by evening and weekend. He didn't have a lot, but he shared what he had with someone who might need it more than him. I, I heard a story at his funeral, actually, about one time that he left the church without his winter coat because there was someone there who needed one. He'd travel long hours or stay up late to counsel someone in crisis. Christian leaders are motivated more by more than duty. They have affection for those that they serve. So they give their all. Out of loving affection for their people, Christian leaders will lose sleep to attend an important meeting or be with someone in their time of need or to help a young person grow in their faith or to study God's word and, and to prepare to teach it well. Sixth quality of Christian leaders. They're moral examples. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. There's no place in any church for leaders who behind closed doors verbally or physically abuse their spouses or their children, who can't get along with their neighbors or their co-workers, who are tight-fisted and fail to share generously what God has blessed them with. But leaders who are upright and gracious, whose lives shine as examples of what it means to live like Jesus today in the 21st century are worth their weight in gold. Seventh and final quality of Christian leaders, they are fatherly teachers, verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dwelt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, Paul is talking about fathers in the ideal sense, the fathers that we wish we had and that we hope to be ourselves for those of us who have children. One excellent book I read on church leadership said that Christian leaders should be both soft-hearted and hard-minded. 
not hard-minded in the sense of being closed-minded, but hard-minded in the sense of being able to do and to teach what's true and right, whether or not it feels nice. Fathers in the first century played a primary role in overseeing the education and instruction and discipline of their children. They cared whether their children grew and matured. And they expected their children to grow and to mature. Paul and his companions cared for the Thessalonians, but they didn't coddle them. Rather, they encouraged and comforted and urged them to grow up spiritually. You know, one of the reasons that I am the person that I am today is that various people in my life cared enough about me to do the father-like things of both caring for me and encouraging me, but also of telling me the faults and the sins that they saw in me and challenging me to shape up. You know, I think one of the best questions that that we can ask when we're selecting church leaders is this. Does this person have any spiritual children? Does this person have any spiritual children? Are there people that I can point to whom this person has nurtured and taught and challenged and helped to grow and mature in, in that person's faith? If those spiritual children just aren't there, And that person is not a Christian leader, at least in the way that Jesus envisioned it. When he said, he told his disciples to go out and make disciples of their own. The most basic foundational element of being a disciple. So the challenge. Take a look at your houses. Who are you a leader of? Who can you influence? How can you grow? As a leader yourself. Now, don't let this grand picture that Paul paints with his life overwhelm you. It takes years to develop as a leader. But what are one or two qualities that you need to be growing in? And what steps can you take? And for the church, if you're a member of this church, then it's elder selection time. Now, I've been here long enough to have figured out that all the leaders at CBC are still in process like I am. But who is moving in the direction of being a mature Christian leader? Do you have a a list of qualities in your mind to be able to make this evaluation? Will you take some time in the coming weeks to make sure you do and to take this seriously? Let's pray. After we pray, Eve's going to say a few practical words about the selection process here. God, thank you for people like Paul and Silas and Timothy, whose examples encourage us and, and challenge us to take that next step in walking toward the example of Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much that you were the kind of leader that you were, not like the other great people of your day, like Alexander the Great before you or Augustus Caesar, whose lives tell of the atrocities and oppression that they were known for in order to become great, but you were a leader who laid down your life in love for your followers. I pray that you teach us what that means in the everyday 
world of Westchester County in the 21st century, that we would find ways to lay down our lives for those in our spheres of influence, to show them Jesus, not just with our words, but with our lives as well. And Jesus, give us a fresh sense of your love for us that we can take these steps in gratitude, not out of duty or obligation, but because we look up to you, because we idolize you, and because we're so grateful for what you've done for us. Amen.